Okay, uh, good to see all of you here today. And uh, today we're going to be preaching on the cross, obviously because uh, Good Friday and Easter are coming up. So let's bow our heads in prayer as we ask God to really help us to understand and uh, remember afresh what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. Dear Father, as we come to you today, as we come to uh, the week of Good Friday, of Easter Sunday, we just pray that you help us to refresh our minds, to put aside the trivial and the unimportant, and to focus on what you've done for us at the crucifixion of your Son. And we pray for these words in the book of Colossians to help us to understand more deeply uh, what you have done for us and to help us to respond uh, as powerfully as before. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> they say uh, that a picture is worth a thousand words. So I'm now going to give you uh, three pictures, uh, three scenes, and I want you to sort of imagine it in your mind. So you're traveling around a, a country road, and you're driving past a cemetery, and you see a man, and he's digging up a grave. And to your utter amazement, as he digs up the grave, he lifts up the body, and as he touches the body, the body comes alive, walks off smiling. So you put the car into brake, you sort of stop the car and you can't quite believe what's happening. So you look again and there he is digging up another grave and taking another body. And as he touches the body, again the body comes alive and walks off smiling. Okay, that's the first scene. Picture one. The second scene is you're sitting in a court, in the highest court of the land. And there in the dock sits the accused. And the accused is being charged with one charge after another, pages and pages of charges read against this man sitting there in the dock. And then after that, witness after witness after witness comes to testify against this man so that there is not a single doubt that this man is guilty. There is without a single shred of doubt that he is guilty and should be condemned to death. And then the accused stands at the dock ready for sentencing and he is a broken man. He is stoop-shouldered. His eyes are facing down. He's defeated. He knows he's guilty. Everybody in the courtroom knows he's guilty. And the judge reads out the sentence. Not guilty. You are free to go. And there's an uproar in the crowd. There's a gasp and shock among the spectators. And the prosecution lawyers are outraged. But this man walks out, a free man, and he's smiling. Okay, that's the second scene, the second picture. Third picture, scene three, is a battle scene. You, you look in this battle, and there is one side, a small group of people, and they're all weaklings, and they're totally defenseless. And on the other side, there's a mighty army, powerful, aggressive, full of the, we uh, the latest weaponry. And they begin to fight, but suddenly, without warning, the weaklings, though they're small, outnumbered, and without weapons, win and emerge victorious. And again, they're smiling on their faces. Now, I want you to think about those three pictures, those three scenes, and I want you to ask yourself, what is the connection between those three? What is the connection between the amazing grave-robbing uh, person, the guilty man set free, and the victorious weaklings? Now, if you say the connection is because they're all smiling, that's the wrong answer. But the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Right? That's the cross of Jesus Christ. If we paid attention in the reading of Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, those are the three pictures that are pictured there in verse 13 to verse 15. So in verse 13 it says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. See, that's a picture of that amazing grave robber. Because the Bible says that in our natural state, men and women in their natural state, in their original state, they are dead in their sins. Dead in their sins. Now, when we think of dead, we think of physically dead, right? Like uh, someone who has been uh, brain dead, someone whose heart has stopped, someone who is lying in a crematorium, someone who is in a, in a grave. Now, uh, just yesterday, uh, my, father was, uh, my grandfather was uh, cremated, and he was 94 years old, so he was born in 1920, and I'm sure that when he was born in 1920, he was a beautiful, vibrant, alive baby. But in God's eyes, he was already dead. He was already dead because he was born into sin. He was born into the realm of sin. He was born into the state of sin. And because he was in the realm of sin, he was born into sin, he comes under the dominion of death. So even though he was born alive and vibrant and crying and screaming, he was already dead. Because he was in the realm of sin, he was under the dominion of death. But here as we look at this passage, as we look at this verse, he was not just dead. We are not just dead physically, but we are also dead spiritually because it says that when you were dead to your, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now what does that mean, the uncircumcision of your flesh? What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God had a relationship with his people, the, the people of Israel, the Jews, and uh, God had made a, a spiritual contract or a covenant with his people. And part of that spiritual contract was a sign that God had gave, given his people, and he said that, look, you will be my people, and as a sign of our relationship, all the males must be circumcised. Right? In Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, it says, This is my covenant with you, and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. Right? And it goes on to say, every child above eight years old must be circumcised as a sign of this relationship between God and his people. So to be circumcised was a symbol of relationship, a symbol of a loving relationship between God and his people. So what it says here in verse 13 is that we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Which effectively God is saying is that we are spiritually dead. We are lost. We are alienated from God. We have no relationship with God because we are symbolically cut off from Him. Symbolically, circum not circumcised. So in reality and in fact, when we are here today, even though we are alive, uh, we are dead. We are spiritually dead, we are physically dead. That is the natural condition that we are in. Because we are born into the realm of sin and the dominion of death. Now you might ask me, you know, say, Andrew, you know, how can that be? What about all the good things that I do? I, I, I'm trying my best to have a relationship with God. I'm trying my best 
to be in relationship with God? How can I not be loved by God? Well, I think the Bible says that basically, once we are born into the realm of death, once we are born into this state of sinfulness, there can be no relationship with God, no matter how hard we try. Because we are already in sin. We are already in the realm of death. So, I want you to imagine me, what I was like when I was born, right? I mean, I was born uh, with black hair, black eyes, yellow skin. Now, no matter how hard I try, uh, today, well, today I'm the way I am, at five foot six, right? Still black hair, black eyes. But no matter how hard I try, I cannot turn myself into a black six foot five athlete who can dunk a basketball, right? I can try very hard, but you know, I can't be that sort of person. I can try very hard, but I can't become a blonde, blue-eyed, uh, white-skinned person like, say, Brad Pitt. Right? No matter how hard I try, I just can't. And I think that's what the Bible is saying here. No matter how hard we try, <clears throat> because we're already born into a state of sin. We are already born into the realm of spiritual death before God. We can try and try and try and try, but we cannot get into a right relationship with God by just trying. But look at what God says in the second half of verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your sins <clears throat> and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. See, what was impossible for ourselves was very possible for God. See, we were dead because we were born to the realm of sin. But what happens? God makes us alive. And how are we made alive? How is that possible? We are made alive with Christ. In Christ, we are now alive spiritually and physically. And how is that possible? Because He forgave us all our sins. See, that is the power of the cross, isn't it? The power of the cross is to make us alive with Christ. To take us out of the realm of sin and the dominion of death into life itself. You know, I always think of, uh, of how nowadays uh, advertising has a lot of taglines. So if I say to you, McDonald's, then what should you be thinking? I'm loving it, right? <clears throat> when you say McDonald's, it's I'm loving it. When you think of KFC, what is it? Finger licking good, right? When you think of Red Bulls, what, what, Red Bull, what do you think? Gives you wings. So when you think of the cross of Jesus Christ, what should you be thinking? It gives you life. Right? It gives you life. Because in Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, takes you from the realm of sin and death and gives you life. And it's not just you as an individual, but you as a plural. See, look at that verse again. When it says... When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. And that you there is actually a plural. It means us, made all of us alive with Christ. 
He forgave us, a plural, all our sins. That is the power of the cross. The cross actually takes the sins of many, 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 many people and makes them become gone, disappeared, so that they now have life, full life. So sometimes, you know, you see people hanging the cross in a car off their rear view mirror, or sometimes I see people driving and I see them put a little cross, you know, on the little dashboard. And you sort of think, well, maybe they believe in Jesus Christ, maybe they don't, but maybe they just treat the cross like a talisman or a lucky charm to protect their car from an accident or protect themselves. But the power of the cross is infinitely more than that. It doesn't just protect your car, it gives you total access to life itself. It's taken you out of the realm of sin and death into life with Jesus Christ. That's what the cross of the the cross of Jesus Christ does for you. It gives you life. Now the second thing it gives us, in verse 14, it says, Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, indebtedness, sorry, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now in the ancient world, archaeologists have found lots of interesting things, you know, like you, you dig things up, Coins, bullets, helmets, shields, anything, right? They dig up, they, they dig up weapons, they dig up writings. Now, some of the writings that they dig up are really important, like some treaty or some very important manuscript. But they also dig up very commonplace and everyday things, like shopping lists, inventory items, and also lists of debts. Right? So, people have dug up archaeologically, like... You think, oh, I found this really important document. What is it? It's just a list of things that someone owes something else, somebody else. And this is what this uh, verse 14 is referring to. is a list of debts. So in the Roman world, in the Jewish world, if you owed someone something, you would write down, these are the things that are borrowed from you, or these are the things that I owe you, and I'll write it in my own hand, I'll sign it off. It's a bit like today, where maybe, you know, uh, I don't expect you to do this. If you go to the pub, Right? And you go to the pub regularly, you know, every day or every couple of days, you get your beer, your martini or your vodka or whatever. You just have a tab, a running tab. Right? Or maybe you go to a, a club or a bar or something, you have a running tab. So that by the end of the month, you can then pay for everything in one shot. Well, this time, God has a running tab. And the running tab is not all the vodkas and martinis and uh, Bloody Marys you've been drinking but it's a running tab of all the the times that you've sinned against the law of God. Every time you've broken the law of God. Every time you've rebelled against God's will for your life. So every thought that you've had, every sinful thing that you've done, even the things that you didn't do, there is, like, so to speak, a running tab of all the wrong things that you've done. That's what it means there by, he has a charge of our legal indebtedness. Indebtedness. So therefore, if you think of uh, Andrew Ong, which is me, if you go up to you know heaven, maybe there's a filing cabinet somewhere, and you take up there's a there's this Andrew Ong list of charge charge sheet right against Andrew Ong, and it probably runs for like miles and pages and pages and pages of all the things that I've done wrong against the law of God. Now, every one of us 
in a sense, has a charge sheet. And every one of us has a very long charge sheet. Some of yours will probably be shorter than mine. That's probably because you're younger than me. But the longer you live, the more you have written on that charge sheet. All the things that you've done wrong, all the thoughts that you've, you've thought wrongly, all the things that you've done wrongly, all the things that you should have done but you didn't do. They're all this charge sheet. And on the last day, on Judgment Day, God says that we will stand before God and all these charges will be presented against us and we will have no defense because this evidence will be overwhelmingly correct and overwhelmingly persuasive and overwhelmingly uh, so large against us. Sin after sin after sin, rebellious act after rebellious act after rebellious act, then we'll have no defense. We can only hang our heads in shame because of all these things we've done wrong. But look at what it says in verse 14. It says, God has cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now this word cancelled, it's kind of like a very gentle word, right? Cancelled. The word here literally means to be blotted out or to rub out or to wipe away. Uh, Apparently, in the ancient world, uh, you know, when when they used to write things, they used to write on animal skin or sometimes they write on wax. So they would reuse uh, the animal skin. It's not like paper, you know, like we, we, we have now paper everywhere, right? You write it, you don't like it, you just scrunch it up and get another paper. But, you know, they used to have animal skin. And they used to write on the animal skin. And after they write, they would, they would then use a sharp knife or something and scrape it off and reuse it again. It's that sort of picture. Or, you know, they'll have a tablet of wax. And they'll write in the wax and then they'll scrape off the top layer and write again. What is the image here? God is saying that all these pages and miles and miles of your charge sheet has been blotted out, has been wiped out, has been rubbed away so that it can no longer be seen. Now how is that possible? How is it that God can just ignore all these things that we've done wrong against Him and against His law? Well, it says here, because He has taken away and nailed it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? How does that work? You see, in the ancient world, <clears throat> when people were crucified on the cross, the charge for which they were crucified was written at the bottom of the cross. Uh, obviously, the Roman authorities had an interest for you to know that this person is hanging there suffering because you must have done something really wrong and they want you to know exactly what it is. So when Jesus Christ was crucified, what was the charge against Jesus Christ that was nailed to the bottom of the cross? Do you all remember? Anybody? At the bottom of the cross, when Jesus died, was the charge that was nailed on the cross which says, King of the Jews. And the charge against Jesus was sedition, isn't it? Because he was claiming to be a king against the emperor. But here, God actually says, that when Jesus died on the cross, what was nailed at the bottom of his cross was not king of the Jews, but your charge sheet. My charge sheet. Our charge sheet. It was, it was the pages and pages and miles and miles of all the wrong things that we've done. God took it 
and nailed it at the bottom of the cross of Jesus Christ when he died. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, crucified there, he was actually dying because of your wrongs, our wrongs. All the things that we've done was nailed at the foot of his feet at the cross. So isn't that wonderful? Because the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't just make us alive, but it completely takes away any record of our sins once and for all. So, when Jesus comes again, uh, maybe some angel or somebody will go, Oh, where is the charge sheet for Andrew Ong? Right, okay, let's go and look, type my name down in the computer system, search Andrew Ong. It's gone! There's no more charge sheet for me. Why? Because it's been taken away and Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he just didn't do that for me. He did that for you and for many others too. He took our charge sheet and he has blotted it out like it's never existed. He's wiped it out. What is the third thing the cross of Christ does for us? In verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now the powers and authorities that are mentioned here in verse 15 are not political power. Okay, it's not earthly structure. But what God is talking about here is evil and demonic spiritual powers. Uh, see, in the worldview of the Bible, uh, we are not just uh, flesh and blood, but we are also spiritual beings. And we live in a world where there are active spiritual forces which are opposed and malevolent and uh, our enemies to a certain degree. And they are powerful and they have influence and they, are, and they have authority and they seek to corrupt us and to turn us against God to do evil and ultimately lead us to our ultimate downfall and destruction. Now the modern world is very sceptical of, uh, I guess, the spirit world and spiritual influence and demonic powers or even Satan, right? I mean, you think of Satan or you think of uh, the devil and uh, what picture comes into your mind? Probably some cartoon character of some person with a horns and a pitchfork. I mean, who's scared of that? I mean, Manchester United uses it for its own uh, logo. Right? I mean, it, it's, Satan is, is, is a parody. But the Bible says that actually uh, Satan, his minions, the spiritual forces of this world are actually powerful and have great authority, great strength and should be feared to a certain degree if we are not in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. A roaring lion. That's what Satan is portrayed as. Luke chapter 22, before Jesus died, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Satan is so powerful that he can sift us just like a farmer sifts wheat. See, the modern world thinks that evil is just a social condition. You know, with enough education, with enough social engineering, 
with enough laws and rules, we can get rid of evil. But the reality is that no matter how the world tries, there is no society in this world which has succeeded in getting rid of evil. Um, is there been a, has there been a society in history which has got rid of murder, of sexual morality, of lying or stealing, or cheating, or malice, or slander in any way? Has there any society in the world actually achieved getting rid of evil? Uh, the communists tried to create a utopia in this world, but they actually became more evil than other nations. Uh, I remember reading a survey showing how it was really interesting. In America, they asked all these kids whether it's okay to cheat in exams, right? And the interesting thing is, or whether they've cheated before, plagiarized, or whether it's okay to cheat in exams. And the interesting thing was, the younger the child was, the more likely they were to say, no, that they don't cheat. But the older they are, they're more likely to cheat. In fact, the people who are most likely to cheat are who? MBA students. Right? Okay, so education does not teach people or stop people from, from sin or evil or wickedness. See, the atheist has no answer for this, but God has. God says that we live in a world where there are spiritual powers at work which are actually corrupting us and leading us against God, into rebellion, and into destruction. And this evil power has great force. It's like it's squatting on us, right? And we have, you know, we're, we're wriggling away under, under it, trying to get out, but we cannot get out. But the good news is, God says that at the cross of Christ, Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you see victory. Now, I think the problem for us is, when, when you know, I, I, I used to think of like this before too, you know, you look at the cross, you look at Good Friday, and you think of tragedy. You think, here, an innocent man was defeated by evil forces. But actually, it's the opposite, isn't it? Because at the cross of Christ is not tragedy or defeat, but victory. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God brought victory for us over the powers and authorities of this world. See, when it says there, in verse 15, He made a public spectacle of them, it is literally a picture of how in the Roman world, when the Romans used to win a battle, what did they do? They used to literally bring the whole defeated army back to the capital in Rome or the provincial capital. The general would ride at the front with his chariots and behind him would parade you know, all the Roman forces in their gleaming armour and their, their might and power. And behind them would be the spoils of victory. All the captured soldiers and they would be like no, you know, they, they would have no weapons, their clothes would be torn, they would be bloodied, and they would be paraded to the streets. Well, that's what the cross of Christ is. The cross of Christ is making a public spectacle of the powers and authorities which try to offend God and oppose God and lead us against God. So, Good Friday 
as we will, as, which is coming up, is not a day of defeat. It is a day of victory. It is a day where we actually have victory over the powers and authorities which hold sway over us, lead us into sin, lead us into death, but now have actually been defeated by Jesus. So we are now free from their power and authority. So what is the cross of Christ? The cross of Christ is, a, is an extremely powerful thing, isn't it? it? It brings us life when we were dead. It brings us freedom when we were guilty. It means that our charge sheet is completely blotted out. It brings us victory when we were under the powers and authorities of this spiritual world. See, in conclusion, I remember borrowing this book from the library. Uh, sometimes when you walk through the library, you find all these uh, interesting books that are just sort of sitting next to the borrowing area. And I borrowed this book called uh, Live Through This. And I remember reading it, and it was a very difficult book to read. There was a really sad book about this mother who was a writer for Newsweek magazine. She had uh, a divorce, a very difficult divorce, and she took her four kids and brought them to another city. And they were all teenagers, I think eight to, uh, eight to about 16. And very soon after the divorce, two of the girls, uh, aged 14 and 16, uh, decided to run away from home. And what they did was they actually ran away and basically just live in the city, stealing, begging, uh, not showering or changing for like weeks or months. And there were these other people they used to hang out with, take drugs, put on tattoos, do everything else, right? And um, it was really a harrowing thing to read. Lah. Like she would go to the city every couple of weeks to look for them. They would sort of try to hide from her, then she would find them, and bring them back home, and then they would run away again. And then they would run away to a city further away. Then she would drive to the city to look for them. Then they would come back. And then they would go to a city even further away. She would hire a private investigator. Things like that. Until finally, uh, she lost track of them for a very long time. And then she found them again. And this time, uh, one of the, the, the daughters, the youngest one, was close to dying. Because you know, in America, it's very cold in winter time, And she got sick with something. And uh, finally, uh, I guess after all that, many years later, they, they decided to come back home to live. And I was thinking, in the same way, God is like that. Right? God is like that. Because we are like those two daughters, the 14 and 16 year olds. If you look at the way we live without Jesus, we are dead. We are dead physically, we are dead spiritually. We have this amazing list of things that we've done wrong and we have to pay for it at Judgment Day. And more than that, we have spiritual forces in this world actively conspiring against us to keep turning away from God and living lives which are actually rebelling against God. But finally, God keeps you know, sending us and trying to get us back to come back and finally He sent Jesus, Jesus to, to solve all these problems for us to bring us alive from our death, to, to wipe out and blot out all the things that we've done wrong, to break us free from the power and authorities which threaten us. But for many people, 
Instead of turning to the cross of Jesus and knowing His power, we just keep running away and running away and running away. But this Easter, this Good Friday, as we remember once again the, what the cross of Jesus Christ has done for us, we should recognize that we, we cannot do anything without it. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we cannot be right with God, we cannot get eternal life, we cannot pay for our sins, and we cannot fight against the spiritual powers and authorities of this life. So let's really remember what God has done for us in Jesus at the cross and really keep turning back to the cross over and over again and putting our faith in the power of the cross for us and what God has done for us in the cross. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, oh dear Father, we pray that you will help us to know the power of the cross of your of the, your Son, Jesus Christ. That is not just a trinket, it is not just a lucky charm, it is not just a talisman, but rather it is the very power of you manifested in your Son to make us alive with Him. Though we were dead in our sins, and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, we were alienated from you. But yet you have brought us back by the power of the cross. We pray and thank you that through the power of the cross, all our sins, the miles and miles of charge sheet against us, of all the wrong things we've done, have been blotted out once and for all because they are nailed at the foot of the cross where Jesus died. And dear Father, we thank you that by the power of the cross you have broken the power of the spiritual powers and authorities in this world which seek to corrupt us and to lead us to turn against you and to bind us in our sin. But now we are set free by what Jesus has done on the cross. And we pray that we will seek only the cross to see that we are lost without it and to always come back to it and put our faith in it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.